0: From the sports of the SecondCity.com studios, it's the Second Winded Podcast. Now, here's your host, Brad
1: Robinson. And welcome into this week's episode of the Second Winded Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Robinson. We're going to talk to Rob Hart later on. He's a reporter with Rivet Radio, a contributor at Southside Stocks. We're going to talk about the White Sox and their disappointing start to this season, what the future may hold on the south side, and if a full sell-off is really a possibility. Rob's got some very interesting ideas on how to rebuild that roster and do it without a complete teardown. But first, I want to talk a little bit about Edwin Jackson. I cover a lot of Cubs games. I'm at Wrigley Field, usually once or twice a series. And every time I'm at the game, I notice Edwin Jackson stepping above and beyond what's asked of him to befriend and sign autographs and give baseballs to young fans. Now, Edwin's a guy that's been much maligned since signing here with the Cubs. He's had two very disappointing seasons in the starting rotation, lost that job. He was signed to be a number three starter. And during those two seasons... He has dealt with constant booze, constant criticism, and unheard-of attacks online. To me, his ability to step above those things and still engage with the very fan base that has been so harsh on him is really a testament to the character of Edwin Jackson. And this isn't just me seeing certain things happen or reporting on certain stories that I notice It's just about everybody you talk to at Wrigley Field that has kind words to say about the man. If you're talking to people in the Cubs organization, you constantly hear words like great guy, very accommodating, one of the good ones. I had a conversation with Cubs pre- and post-game host Mark Grody before Monday's game. Grody is in his first season traveling with the team, and he gets a very inside look at who these guys are, and he had nothing but praise for Edwin Jackson as a person. I've seen Edwin approach kids that are sitting in the dugout before the game. I don't know how they got there, probably contest winners or something of the sort. One of the kids had a broken arm, and Edwin went up and started telling them stories about his own injuries in the past leaving the game a couple weeks ago against the Reds, I was walking past the players' lot, and I saw Edwin Jackson leaving with his kids in the back seat, stopping and signing autographs for a group of fans, not once, but twice. These are things that he's not required to do. These are things that show Edwin, as a human being, And not just as a baseball player. Not just as a guy who struggled in his starting stint with the Cubs. I got a chance to catch up with Edwin before Monday's game against the Dodgers. And before I spoke to him, I was standing in front of the Cubs dugout. Watching batting practice. And as the Cubs ended their batting practice session, all of the players shagging balls from the outfield started running back towards the dugout to go back into the locker room. As I saw that flock of Cubs players moving towards me, I saw one man veer off to the right, running from left center field all the way to the wall behind the Cubs bullpen. It was Edwin Jackson. My first instinct was that he must have forgotten something in the bullpen, a glove, a hat, a jacket, a jersey, whatever it may be. But that wasn't the case. There was nothing in that bullpen for him. What was there was a group of fans that Edwin decided to hand-deliver a baseball to one of those kids standing waiting. So as I noticed these things on a game-by-game basis, it sparked my interest. How a guy that's been the target of such hate can rise above it and still express his gratitude to a fan base that has done nothing of the sort to him. And here's a couple minutes of that conversation I had with Edwin Jackson. I notice every time I'm covering a game, you uh, treating younger fans really well, going out of your way to sign autographs, give baseballs. How do you get over some of the uh, vitriol that you've dealt with the first couple of years and still kind of keep yourself in a position to, to do those nice things?
2: That's what you signed up for, man. Uh, I mean, as a professional, you sign up, you know, to deal with whatever is thrown your way. And uh, what you do on the field has nothing to do with how you treat the fans. You know, that's, that's two, different, two different areas, you know, two different spectrums of the map. And, uh, I mean, you owe it to yourself to go out and, you know, these are kids and they're coming out looking at you, looking up to you. And regardless of numbers and stuff, uh, I feel like kids can look up to you regardless whether it's on-field play or off-field play being a father maybe play a little role in that um it started way before it started before i mean it's just the upbringing uh you know you're out here to have fun you know uh whether like i say you don't carry on what you're doing on the field to how you act off the field or how you treat the fans you know that it doesn't the fans aren't the reason that someone to go out there and have a bad game or have a good game you know uh, that's all on you um what i do on the field it has nothing to do with you know how i treat fans you know
1: uh, on the field, you've uh,
2: really settled in nicely into the bullpen role. Anything uh, specifically you're doing different? It's just coming out and being aggressive, man. Uh, I mean, it started in spring. Had a pretty distant spring, uh, aside from a couple starts. Uh, just coming in, man. Uh, you can't dwell on the past. It's a game of failure. Uh, it's already a hard enough game. And uh, if you come out worrying about what you did the previous years, you'll never be able to succeed in a game. Uh, you almost have to have a short term memory and just be confident and, and be knowingly of what you can do and what you're capable of doing. Awesome. Edwin, thank you very much, No problem, man. Take it
1: easy. All right, let's bring in our guest for the week. You have heard him all over Chicago radio, WGN, FM News, WLS. He's now with Rivet Radio. He's also a contributor at Southside Sox. You can find him on Twitter at Rob Hart1980. It's Rob Hart. Hey, Rob, how you doing? Doing well. How you doing? I'm good. Uh, Since the last time we spoke, things have gone from bad to worse for the White Sox. This team just can't seem to get out of its own way.
0: Yeah, this is uh, miles away from uh, where anyone thought this team would be going into the 2015 season. However, I will say the White Sox uh, do have some company in the misery department, uh, simply because all of the other teams that seem to have won the off season, the San Diego Padres, the Seattle Mariners, are all in dire straits, the Padres, which were far and away the off champs. They just fired Bud Black. So uh, the White Sox are a disappointment, and that's an understatement, but they are not alone in uh, in the misery department at the very
1: least. Well, and Bud Black is known to be a, a fairly good manager, something that we can't really say for Robin Ventura at this point in his career. But even though Ventura hasn't been good and the play on the field has been uh, sloppy and lackadaisical and all the things that you point to uh, as a lack of leadership. Still, if you're talking about the difference between Robin Ventura and Joe Madden, that's not the difference between a team that's nine games under, 500, and nine games over. The problems are far deeper than what Ventura is showing.
0: Well, let's, let's take a whole look at Robin Ventura's tenure as the White Sox manager. And I want to start off by saying that I like robin ventura personally he is a a nice human being he was always nice to me in my capacity as a reporter and what happened over the last three years should not diminish his contributions to the white sox franchise from 1989 through 1998 however since august of 2012 the white sox in various iterations and with various rosters have simply been a disaster. I mean, probably the worst we have seen this team in decades. And we're approaching the point where there is a large enough sample size where you have to say it's probably time for a change. The team, for whatever reason, is simply not responding to his leadership, and it is getting worse.
1: Rick Hahn uh, obviously thought he was putting together a team that would be competing at a high level here. Most fans thought the same thing. Uh, Some of the national media, not so much on board with some of the moves Hahn made. Although uh, it looked like they were really going all in. Do these struggles kind of lead to a shaky future for Han? Because Jerry Reinsdorf's a very loyal guy. We've seen that with the Sox and the Bulls. So I don't really see him making a move at the upper levels. But is Rick Han's future in jeopardy, you think?
0: Probably not. Let's let's break this down into its uh, component parts. The, uh, the pitching staff is still tremendous. Uh, Chris Sale is good. Uh, that's an understatement. <laughs> Jose Tan has been good. And uh, uh, Samarjit, even for his early season struggles, has come back to earth. Carlos Rodon is a very intriguing prospect going forward. And John Danks is probably on the Edwin Jackson plan. Uh, you'll see him in the bullpen next year because already the money paid to him is just simply bad money. You've got to ride this thing all the way to the bottom. Um, the the bullpen has been very good. David Robertson, Friday notwithstanding, has been a tremendous closer. And so what you really have to look at now is the bottom half of the White Sox lineup. Uh, I don't think anybody anticipated Alexei Ramirez to be as awful as he has been, uh, both at the plate and in the field with mental miscues. Melky Cabrera is starting to turn it around. A lot of those uh, the balls are starting to find... Uh, starting to find grass once again. So he had, for example, had a very good day on Sunday against the Rangers. Adam Eaton has uh, come back around after a a lackluster April. So you really have to look at the third base position. You look at the shortstop position. You have to look at second base. And you have to look at catcher because despite showing fits and starts of improvement, Tyler Flowers really hasn't uh, uh, demonstrated the... um, Ability that they thought he had when they got him from the Atlanta Braves organization eight years ago. So those, that's the, those are the areas of improvement that uh, Rick Hahn should target going forward. And I heard a very intriguing, you know, there's this story because everything, everything just rotates around planet, planet Red Sox. You and I both know this. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, Sandoval and uh, Hanley Ramirez, uh, they, they just might want to just cut bait with them and get them out of town. And if they're willing to just get rid of them and eat the money and just remove their presence from the Fenway Park Clubhouse, if I'm Rick Hahn, I would uh, definitely uh, listen to what the Red Sox have to say.
1: So what you're saying is you're in the camp of more maybe retooling now for the future as opposed to just tearing it down and trying to start all over again, you know, like the Cubs have done.
0: Well, you look at the uh, a teardown what that would entail. That would require trading Chris Sale. That would require trading Quintana, which is something I have kind of thought out loud about on Twitter, uh what you could get in return for a Jose Quintana because both Sale and Quintana are under extremely team friendly contracts until at least the year 2020. So you are talking about trying to, to acquire prospects or major league-ready players from a team, and even if you put together an extraordinarily attractive package, even if you clean out an entire league team's minor league system uh, in, in your return for sale, what you get back may not come close to matching the value that sale provides to the organization. So why not just keep the pitching staff that you have because the White Sox have proven they're very good at, 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 at acquiring and developing pitching and just shore up a couple of positions because really like any warm body would be better than what uh, Connor Gillespie is doing at third or better than Alexei Ramirez. So you just it's it's almost in some ways addition by subtraction.
1: Do you think the White Sox have a little bit of uh, seller's remorse not dealing Alexei when his value was through the roof uh, last year or in the off season? Um,
0: I, I really don't know if uh, if they have uh, reached that point yet because I think they thought because Alexei has been you know won a Silver Slugger last year I thought they would uh, get more of that uh, going forward and uh, going into. Uh, in, into this year, I think they thought Tyler Flowers had turned a corner because he had a very um, a very encouraging second half, which <laughs> you could uh, attribute to the glasses that he started wearing in the second half of last year. So I think they made a number of assumptions based on the fact that the improvement they saw from some players would stick around, and
1: uh, th- that proved not to be the case. So, if you're actually looking at a tear down kind of situation, the White Sox are actually in—they're in kind of a fortunate position if they decided to go that route. Very few teams that have performed as poorly on the field as they have uh, have as many tradable assets that, at the big league level, that other clubs would find interesting. I mean, guys like Adam LaRoche, guys like Jeff Samarja, you mentioned Quintana. Uh, Bonifacio wouldn't bring a lot in return, but I'm sure somebody would be interested in him. Uh, Beckham's actually rebuilt his trade value a little bit. Uh, And then you add in the sale and Abreu thing, which we'll get to in just a minute, but uh, a, a complete rebuild, it probably wouldn't take as long as it took the Cubs in 2011 when they really had nothing to trade off.
0: Well, you're talking about low-level prospects here. The the kind of return you'd get for a Beckham, Bonifacio, you just release, and then um, Roche, you might get a couple of uh, interesting. You know, again, you're talking B-level prospects for him. And uh, Samarja, I don't know if you can get the type of return that the Cubs got when they traded him almost a year ago. <laughs> I don't see a team giving up a, an Addison Russell for half a season of Jeff Samarja. And and I'm in the camp, too, that maybe they should just negotiate an extension with him right now. Just get that out of the
1: way. Well, that would maybe be a pretty good decision, considering that he has underperformed a little bit and his value is down a little. They may be able to get him on a pretty friendly deal, considering what we thought he would be getting in the offseason.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, perception being everything, you'll take a look at the the numbers and find out that especially over the last couple of starts, he's done a very good job. Um, I I would say if look at the the Toronto Blue Jays, a very good example of its team that really kind of went for it in 2013 and didn't do all that well. And then they tried to go for it again in fourteen and didn't do all that well. And then they got Josh Donaldson, and now they're back in the thick of it in their first uh, AL East pennant race for the first time since the nineteen nineties. So you can make a couple of small uh, changes and and be right back in this next year. And and the AL Central is there's a great deal of parity now. Uh, Detroit is on the downswing, Cleveland's kind of in a, a, a questionable area, and then I think uh, Minnesota's arrival date has been uh, pushed up by a couple of years, and Kansas City has very good. So I, th- I think with just a couple of changes, the White Sox could be an AL Central contender next year, they could also be a wild card contender next year, or they can entirely prove... <laughs> Or they can entirely prove me wrong now and just rattle off like a, a a ten and two stretch in the next two weeks, but I don't see that happening, especially with the way they've been playing now.
1: All right, now we're going to get to Sale and Abreu. I wrote a piece uh, yesterday on on my website, Sports of the Second City, and basically I was a proponent of the Sox tearing it all down, uh, selling Sale, selling Abreu, because having a Cy Young caliber pitcher that's young and cost-controlled like Sale and having a a guy who looks like he could be a perennial MVP candidate and he's a slugger and those guys we know are incredibly difficult to find nowadays in Major League Baseball. uh, I think that this White Sox would be able to deal those two guys and rebuild a farm system that would rival any in baseball if not blow everybody away. So, If the Sox did decide to go that route, which I I don't think they are, so we're playing strictly hypotheticals here because I don't think uh, Reinsdorf would allow Sale to be traded. I know he's a big fan of Sales. He doesn't want to disappoint the fan base. But if they did decide to go that route, uh, what kind of return is realistic to expect for a guy that's 26 years old, has four years left on a deal, and right now is pitching better than anybody in all of baseball?
0: Well, let's put it this way. If uh, the Cubs wanted Chris Sale, the, the bidding starts with Chris Bryant. And that's the type of return that we are talking about here, and which is why trading Sale or trading Abreu borders on impossible um, because there, there's no way they can retrieve or get back the type of value that they would be trading away. And the fact that you have Chris Sale at the peak of his pitching ability, the fact that you have a Jose Abreu in the center of your lineup, that makes any turnaround that much faster. You just have to give them better complementary pieces. And, and you can find a way to upgrade from Tyler Flowers. You can upgrade from Alexei Ramirez. You can upgrade from Carlos Sanchez. You can upgrade from Gordon Beckham. And, uh, and and Connor Gillespie. Those are very easy fixes to make, and it doesn't require anything drastic.
1: Well, considering that they're all playing at a below-replacement-level performance, I, I think it would be pretty easy to replace them, according to the stats. I mean, as you know, war is a stat that is based on basically taking a guy out of the minor leagues and, and sticking him there, and uh, the stats show that the White Sox, they, they've got three guys with a positive war right now in their offensive lineup. So replacing those guys, yeah, you're right. It it shouldn't be very difficult.
0: No, it shouldn't be very difficult at all and and you also have a very good bullpen and a very good closer. So all of those pieces are in place and those are the 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 pieces that are always the toughest to acquire, the ace, the slugger, the lockdown closer. The Sox have all of those things. And um again, <laughs> <laughs> you, another thing you have to think of, too, is the coaching staff. And, you know, if if you fire Robin Ventura now, you're just merely sending a message that, that the culture in the clubhouse needs to change. Um, Robin Ventura was hired, I think. It was a case of the general fighting the last war. And uh, Kenny Williams, who was still the GM of the team in 2011, wanted somebody who was so unlike Ozzie Gian in temperament and and need to seek the spotlight that that was that was that was Ventura's that was his calling card that that was his thing and and now that we've proven that uh, when when those leadership abilities are tested in a baseball setting it doesn't necessarily work this is going to be Hans first managerial hire so I don't want him to do a Craig Council thing where, surprise, you, you, not only is he the new guy, he's the new guy for four years. Um, there may be a tipping point where they simply let him go because they have to send a message to the players. Uh, Adam Eaton actually today in the Sun-Times said that he likes how comfortable things are in the clubhouse. Well, and that sure. police each other and that nobody is neurotic and nobody feels any pressure and nobody's trying to press And to which I have to say, what what, what's the alternative? Um, Maybe you do have somebody who actually benches players for lackadaisical play. You have somebody who benches players for for making mistakes in the field as opposed to just running them out there every day and hoping they play themselves out of it. Um, Bud Black being a free agent as a manager, is intriguing to me. I don't know if he would fit inside the White Sox. I don't know if if the White Sox would be uh, willing to reach that far outside of their orbit. Uh, It is an organization that tends to, as you said, value loyalty, and they they find people that they like, they find people that make them comfortable, and then kind of keep them in the organization forever. So we'll see if, if Rick Hahn can go up to Jerry Reinsdorf and say, look, this is not something we do But I believe in this guy and I think we should get him.
1: Well, Bud Black, when I heard he was fired, that was my first instinct was he would look really good in a White Sox uniform. I know a lot of White Sox fans have for years and years clamored for uh, Ron Garden hire. And I know there's starting to get some upswell. And we talked about this last time you were on the show uh, about Ozzie Guillen coming back, possibly if you had your choice of those three, uh, where would you go?
0: everybody remembers the good things about garden hire and the good things about Ozzie Gian, But if you kind of dig into the Minnesota twin fan complaints about late model Ron Gardenhire, is that he was also somebody who kind of locked himself into a particular way of thinking and never worked his way out of it, which could explain the reason why he's, uh, he's, he's kind of sitting out this year Ozzie, you also have to remember, you know, for 2005 and 2006 and the fantastic managerial job he did in 2008, steering a very injured club into the playoffs, you have 2010, you have 2011, you have the soap opera, you have the kids, you have the in-house uh, palace entry, you have all of these things that people kind of forgot about as the Robin Ventura Sox foundered. Uh, but I would imagine, especially since we're coming up on the uh, 2005 World Series 10th anniversary celebrations, reunions in July, we're going to see a lot of Ozzie Guillen. We saw him at the Paul canerico retirement ceremony a couple of weeks ago, and I would imagine that the fan fever pitch for Ozzie will be very loud. But you also have to remember that the way he left the organization – Um, The bridge may be, there may be blueprints to repair that bridge, but there hasn't been a budget. Uh, There are no invoices and no construction crews are on the way to repair that bridge. So it's going to take a little while longer, I think, from a front office standpoint. Before the team is actually comfortable and saying, I want to come back and manage because the way he went out was was not particularly pleasant.
1: Rob, I call this the high fidelity syndrome. It's when you sit back and you wax poetic about the ex-girlfriends and all the great times and how perfect they were. And then when you rekindle, you realize that it wasn't that great or that perfect. And you just had kind of selective memory.
0: Right. That's exactly what happens. You, 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 uh, you sand out all of the rough edges, and that was the case with Ozzie Guillen. And I'm sure now that we're doing these World Series remembrances, the rose-colored glasses will be on.
1: All right. He's Rob Hart. You can hear him on Rivet Radio. He's a contributor at SouthSideSox.com. Find him on Twitter at RobHart1980. Rob, thanks for uh, joining me this week. Great stuff as always. Thank you very much. All right, before we wrap it up for the week, I want to share some thoughts I have on the NHL deciding to go to three-on-three overtime play. Now, putting in gimmicks is nothing new for the NHL under Commissioner Gary Bettman. That's what the four-on-four at overtime is. That's what the shootout is. I personally not a big fan of the shootout. And think a 5-minute 4-on-4 overtime is not indicative of the 60 minutes the teams play beforehand to get to that point. And then, in a shootout, to lose on a fluke when you've laid it out on the line all night, to me, is not fair. The move to 3-on-3 is obviously an attempt to get more fan interest, to get more open ice, to get more scoring. But if Gary Bettman wants to get the NHL into more houses across the country and build a stronger fan base he could start by putting games on network television or easily accessible cable television as opposed to the garbage contract they have now and it wouldn't hurt to get rid of hockey in horrible markets that don't show up for the games like phoenix and miami and that'll do it for this week's episode of the second winded podcast special thanks to rob hart you can find them on Rivet Radio or at Southside Sox, it's also on Twitter at Rob Hart 1980 We'll be back next week with a whole new episode. Until then, go to sportsofthesecondcity.com for writings on all of Chicago's professional sports teams. Thanks for listening. So long.